You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Let's head into our scripture here in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting all the way down in verse, well, not all the way, it's not all the way down, verse 8. This is Peter, uh, an apostle, disciple of Jesus, and he writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this is what you recalled, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Would you pray with me? Father, we come here today and we just praise you, gratitude in our hearts uh, that we get to be together today. Lord, you are no more available this morning uh, than you are to us the rest of the week. Your spirit is no more available to us today than it is on Wednesday but we are grateful to be gathered as the saints of your believer, corporately together, praising you, listening to your word. Uh, Let us not forget the blessing it is to be with other Christians. And so God, we just come before you humble. We know, Lord, that there are ways in which we have fallen short of you this week. There are things that we should not have said, things that we've done. And Lord, we plead for your forgiveness today. We delight in your grace. We delight in your mercy. Lord, use your word to convict our hearts, guide our hearts to conviction and delight in your joy. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. So Peter ends this letter to the early church with a final persuasion on how believers should deal with a world that may threaten or belittle them. And in those words, I pray that we might find good nourishment for our souls. Here's the big idea for us today as we walk into this. The big idea that we want to walk through is that to engage with culture, we first engage our faith. To engage with culture, we first engage our faith. You know, in the past few weeks, we've talked about the tension that exists in the world, within our church, within ourselves, not just like this church, but the church, the global church. Paul, inspired by God, writes in Romans 12, 
for us today and for them back then, that in light of the magnitude and the measure of God's grace to us, in light of his mercy, in light of our mutual need for a savior, in light of the fact that we are lacking, that we should therefore make ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and true to God that we should live and delight and rest in Christ who supplies and secures all things for us, that we should live and rest and delight in Christ as a living sacrifice, not conforming ourselves to the patterns of the world, but renewing our minds, our hearts, our lives by the flourishing and sufficient wisdom of God. Yet, if we are honest, the idea, the posture of living as a sacrifice, wanting that posture, or even enjoying that posture, seems to be difficult. That proves to be hard. That sort of selflessness and sort of deference to God is not the natural inclinations of our hearts, nor is it the natural inclination of the world, nor is it found in its messaging. But as Solomon, the son of David, the wisest man, Scripture says, that has ever lived, puts it, there is nothing new under the sun. So the current situation that we're in, our lack of desire to trust God, is not a new problem, but it's one that's very old, one that's been present from the very beginning. We remember our very first book of the Bible is Genesis And in Genesis, we find the account of creation. And and we see God creates the earth. He makes a paradise for man and woman to live in, the garden that we know as Eden. And inside that garden, God walks with his people. He dwells with his people in perfection. But he has one caveat. He has one request. One thing I ask you, don't eat from that tree. Don't eat from that. God poured out his love abundantly on creation, but it came with one guiding principle. Trust me. All of it is yours, but this one thing, it's not good for you. Trust me in this. We know the story, though. Humanity, amongst their abundance, restless in that abundance, disobeyed God, ate of what they were not supposed to, and all of the cosmos broke Sin and death entered the world, creation, mankind, culture, broken because of it. And that is the story of our original ancestors, Adam and Eve. Yet, it is also our story. Like, that's my story. That's your story. That's our story. We are restless in abundance. We always are wanting more. Never is it enough. Yet, it is our mutual love and faith in Christ that brings us peace that renews us, that brings us redemption and rescue and hope in this decaying world. Our rest in Christ is the cure for our restlessness in the world. But unless we're able to see and taste the world as being bitter, we will never find the rest that is necessary in our Savior. Our world and its systems have exploited the trauma of restlessness in humanity for its own benefit, we call it consumerism. It's a never-ending attempt to profit by marketing, alluring, enticing humanity into the belief that if you just had that one thing, your life would be better. If I could just have that, then all of my troubles would go away. 
It's a poison that offers to us no real hope, little joy, and absolutely no peace. Yet today, much like we did in the garden, humanity conveys that what stands in the way of mankind being all that it could be is the very creator himself. We put God in his word, in his wisdom, in his commands, in his love on trial. We accuse him in his commands and those laws of being what gets in our way, of being absolutely who we should be, of living and thrying. We say that his book keeps us from peace, that his laws are what makes us unhappy. We don't look at ourselves, we blame an all-sufficient good God. Like a toddler at his own birthday party, abundant in food and presents and people, throwing a tantrum because they see a neighbor in another yard with a popsicle they can't have. And increasingly in this world, we feel the pressure of a world that is at war with God as a people who want to find rest in the presence of God. But more concerning than that is that this term evangelism, this ever, or not evangelism, consumerism, that elevates the idea of satisfaction coming from getting more of what you want has permeated itself into the church. It's a brilliant but deceptive trick from the enemy to make God's own people begin to instruct and teach one another that not only is it okay for you to achieve all the unchecked desires and dreams and goals of your heart, but more than that, God wants to help you get there. God wants to help you achieve that. If that's what you really want, then know this, that God will help you get what you want. And this is where we find ourselves today. A world at war with God, and an impulse of God's people to bend towards that world, to remain relevant and comfortable inside of it, all the while God's faithful continue to diminish within culture. Church attendance is at its all-time low, and it's only projected to get lower in the future. And if we think about faith and our commitment to Christ, it can at times feel worrisome and heavy and burdened, not just for ourselves, but for our kids and our grandkids and our future grandkids. We think, what will this world look like for them? Yet we also know that in Christ we have no reason to fear. And we have all the more reason to be confident that this too will be for our good. And so this is the question that we have to embrace today. What do we do? What do we do about it? Do we pack up shop and leave? Do we emulate our pilgrim ancestors and arrive in a different country on Plymouth Rock? Do we just retreat? Do we circle the wagons and just say, oh, everything's evil. We just need to protect ourselves and keep ourselves pure from all the adultery that's going on around us. Do we just, do we give up? I can't do this anymore. Do we retreat or do we engage? And of course the answer is, is that we engage. We engage. How we engage matters, but we engage. The Apostle John tells to us in his gospel to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus compels to us that you are the light of the world. 
salt of the earth. Don't let your light be hidden, but let it shine brightly. He says, go and make disciples of the world. Jeremiah the prophet says, seek the welfare of the cities that you live in. In our creation, we remember that God's humanity, mankind itself, is God's image bearer. And so as Christians, we believe that humanity shares the image of God and they should be treated with dignity and honor. But also within our creation, we know that when God made us, he made us as partners, as co-dwellers on the earth that we are to cultivate, subdue, and multiply on this earth. We believe and still do that God so loves the world. Maybe not in all of their actions, maybe not in all of my actions, but God loves his creation. And we as ambassadors of peace, agents of reconciliation as the Bible calls us, are to walk into that world with hope and engage it, to cultivate it, redeem it, and restore it. We want people to know who we know We want people to love what we love. We want them to see the goodness of God in their design. We want our communities to flourish. But it matters how we engage. It matters why we engage. Uh, I worked for over a decade uh, in youth. And one of my weekly tasks was to go to lunch tables and sort of engage students at their table about what was happening. And I, I just... I made it sort of my job uh, to think of fun ways to engage with them. How could I do, what could I do to make them like me? What could I do to impress them? What could I do for them to hear me? And honestly, I was annoying. That just, if you were a high school kid in here and I was your campus life director, I was a little bit annoying at times. Somewhere along the way, Uh, I stopped thinking about how I engage people in a entertaining, goofy, trendy way and instead just be faithful to whom God was making me to be. And I, I tell you, it is far more authentic and compelling than trying to pretend and engage in a world by trying to be attractive to it. And so when we think about engagement, when we think about how we engage in the world, we might consider how do I make myself appealing or attractive to the world so that they know what I want or what, what we love, they want to know what I know. But the problem in becoming like the world to reach the world is that you offer to them nothing contrasting. You don't bring them anything different. And so if you are today to move from Bluffton to Chicago and you lived there for years and you just embraced the culture and you began to dress in the fashion that Chicagoans dress in, whatever that is, and you began to speak the language of Chicagoans and maybe you, you said, da bears, you know, you just, that's my Chicago language, da bears, dicka, brats. You just sort of spoke the language. You embraced everything that it was and meant to be Chicagoan. How do you think people would respond to you on the street if you walked up to them and said, hey, Bluffton is great. You really should live in Bluffton. They have a great mayor. They have a decent pastor on the west side. Life is slower. You can literally go a mile in a minute. 
It's incredible. And then you say, okay, now I need to go back to my apartment and go to my job here. What do we offer the world if all we are is like the world? What do we offer? A feeling? Nothing tangible, nothing real, nothing substance of substance. You know, Paul writes that to the, to the Jews, I become like a Jew. To the Greeks, I become like a Greek. To the, to the Romans, I become like a, a Roman. To all people, I become all things so that I might reach some for the gospel. What Paul is saying is I, I'm not bending myself to every single culture. Paul is saying I'm going to understand that culture enough to know it ways that I don't have to be unnecessarily offensive to them. So Paul knows that for Jewish people to eat certain things would be overtly offensive. Paul's thinking, I don't want to offend culture any more than I already am with the gospel. And so how can I become like them so that they hear the real offense, the real truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So our scripture tells us that what is most important for us when we engage in the world is not that we seem attractive or appealing or alluring to the world, but yet we keep ourselves from being worldly. Because we want people to be attracted to the God that created the world, not the one who lives in the world. We want his glory to be known in their lives. And so let's talk about how we engage with culture. And I'm going to give you three ideas that are important for us as we seek to make our communities flourish, to seek the welfare of our cities, live in partnership, to seek what is good and right in people's life, three ideas that I, I want to compel to us on how we should interact with the world. Number one is this, is that we engage with rest. We engage with rest. I mean, think about it this way. As much as I like you guys in this room, I don't want to be around you if you haven't slept well or rested well in the last week. I don't want, you don't want to be around me if I haven't rested well for a week. I'm not the person I want to be. I'm not the person I want to be towards you. Rest is important. And God, being gracious in his design, teaches us in that much more about what he desires for us. That God wants us to rest, not physically, but also spiritually. Every one of us in this room needs sleep. And what is it immensely true as well is that every one of us needs to find rest for their soul. Jesus says, come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In our culture, we make much about work and we compel Christianity as something that we have to work harder for, yet ironically, the gospel tells us that following Jesus when it gets difficult, that in doing that, the answer isn't working harder. We find the solution in resting better. Only by learning to rest in Jesus will we have the strength to flourish in this our time. And so spiritual resting is about spending time with our creator. It's about abiding in his truth. It's about remembering who he is. And I'm going to give you three ideas of what that means. It means we understand and we rest in Christ as our righteousness. Peter, in this letter, writes, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's face is towards, turned towards those who are righteous, upright with God. But our own pursuit of righteousness isn't surrounded by effort. But it's found in rest, in Christ, 
who is all of our hope and all of our righteousness. I can't earn my righteousness. I can't earn my right standing in front of God. God gives it to me as a divine act of mercy, of grace. And the more I rest in that, the wonderful gift of God's grace given to us, the more likely I am to pursue his righteousness from my satisfaction in him. I want to be righteous because God is, and God loves me, and I want to be like him. And so we rest, and his righteousness is mine. But number two is we rest that Christ is my identity. We rest that he's my identity as well. We will never rest in our life if we think our identity is in our jobs, in our kids, or in our stuff. You will always be stressed out trying to manage, trying to play keep away, trying to make sure everybody's safe. But if my identity is found in my creator and being a beloved son and daughter of Christ, I don't have to fight to find my value on the earth because it's secure, eternal, and unchanging in my God in the heavenly realms. My value doesn't change. Third, we find rest in Christ as our protector. One of the hardest lessons in our life, is it not, is learning how to surrender control. We want to control everything. And the reason that we can't control everything is because we're not God. We're limited. But we can let God be God. And so we learn to trust God. And we surrender control. And we begin to see that the only responsibility I have is to act wisely and justly in my time and opportunity and my ability that God has given to me. I just need to be faithful to him and what he brings to me. Spiritual rest comes from abiding, abiding in the belief that God is our righteousness, our identity, and our security. And so if you are at rest with God, you will embrace and engage the world in a very different way. But we aren't often at rest, are we? As Christians today, we seem to be at war at the world at times because we have a false belief that our value and our identity and our security still lies here. And we act like unbelievers to get what we want. That's not what God has called us to. He's called you to be pure and holy, unstained by the world. And the only way that you do that is to rest in the sufficiency of Christ. If we truly believed that God was our value, our righteousness, our identity, our protector, what could you get from the world that you don't already have in Christ? It frees us up to engage with the world, not trying to get anything from it, but instead giving to it what God has given to us. The second way that we interact with the world, engage, is this. We have to begin to think me, not they. Paul, or Peter, writes, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, to, bless for those you are called, uh, for, to this you are called that you may obtain blessing. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled, but let your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The flawed belief of consumerism is that if I just had that, my life would be better, 
But we soon realize that if I do get that, there's always the next. If I now, oh, now that, that, I had that, but that is really what I wanted. But what is even more sinister and concerning about consumerism is it makes us the customer. And our belief is this, is that the customer is always right. And that plays out in feeling right in wanting our desires, but also feeling right in the issues and problems that find us in the world. I'm the customer, and I'm always right. Consumerism doesn't only teach us that we need that to feel better. It teaches us if they would get their stuff together, my life would be better. If they would just get it together. And so we might say, if these kids would just stop this, you kids, you just stop it. You were that kid at one point in your life that they said, now they, this is the worst generation ever. If they would just do this, can we just be honest enough to say people are crazy, right? People are nuts, right? We can laugh at that, but we also, we are crazy. We are nuts at time. And so often, we have fear and anger in our lives. It comes from us as believers. We operate as believers that have no rest because we believe that what we need in life is for them, they, to get their problems figured out so my life can be better. We are angry at times, we are fearful at times, which is rooted in the fact that our country, our home, doesn't look like it used to. And certainly doesn't look like it did when we were kids, unless you're a kid in here, then it looks like what it looks like when you're a kid. And so we say, if they would do this, because we're a customer and we're always right. Paul tells us that we should not think of ourselves so highly. And the scripture says to us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it against the evil in the heavenly realms. The divine wisdom of scripture is for you as a believer to pursue holiness, humility, and righteousness in God. It doesn't teach you to feel better about yourself by pointing out the lack of it in others. Peter writes, so what if somebody does evil to you? So what if they revile against you? Don't return it. Bless them. Because our only concern is about making sure we honor the Lord in our hearts and that we stay holy and pure as he is ourselves. If we are going to call people into something greater, we actually have to live like there is something greater. And so hear me, like, you will not legislate, you will not legislate yourself into a better world in a fallen creation. You will create a better world by living in a different kingdom, in a different home, as you journey on this earth. That's when things will change. It's not the they's in the world. The they's in the world are distracting you from the you. You will make your life better by living, and those around you better by living in a different kingdom as you live in this fallen world. 
That doesn't mean that we don't engage with government. That doesn't mean that we don't try to critique culture at times. It just means that we do it as a follower of Jesus who first and foremost live in a different kingdom with a different king. We call out injustice, we work for the broken, we work for the voiceless, but we do it in a way that would honor the Lord. And we do it out of our rest in him. And thirdly, and how we engage with the world, we have to understand that shadows prove light. Shadows prove light, and I'll explain that. Paul, Peter writes, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so how do we do that? How do we give reasons for people? We are engaging a world that is increasingly hostile to Scripture, to the Bible, to its wisdom. People do not want to hear the truth of God. They don't believe that our book is divinely inspired. So what do we do about that? Well, first, we, we don't put it aside. Never do we put it aside. We live faithfully to it. But we also know that God's truth is more than just in a book. Paul writes in Romans that for his invisible attributes, God himself, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are also compelled to bring to others the truth of God as it is in his design, as it is in his creation, as we live in this fallen world. The apostle Paul was great at this. In the 50 ADs, he's in Athens, and he journeys around these Grecians, and he sees these multiple gods, and there's this one tomb, and it's inscribed with, to, the, God, to, the, to the, the unknown God. And, and Paul sort of kind of rebukes them in a bit uh, of, their, of this inscription. He accuses them for being ignorant of why they worship. But what he is saying is that uh, you know in your heart that you need to worship something. You know in your heart that you need to serve something, yet you have no idea what it is. And so Paul is pulling on the fact that humanity will worship. We will serve. And the reason that we will worship and the reason that we will serve is because we were created to. We were created to worship God, not anything on this earth. Paul takes what is natural in people and he images it in their creator. We have, to be al- we have been for a- allowed for a long time in this world to engage with our faith and our belief differently than we will in the future. In our past, most everybody believed that what was in the Bible was good and right. Most everybody around you sort of believed the same things that you believed. But today in the future, that will not be the story. And so we have to engage with our faith. We ask, have to ask ourselves, why do I believe this? Why is this good? Why is this true? And you will find those answers in Scripture, but you will find them in creation. And going forward, it will be for the good of God's people and culture to show God's faithfulness, goodness, and truth within his creation for the world to see it. Because it's there. So let me give you an example of what that means to make shadows point to light. I was suggested uh, a couple weeks ago to listen to a podcast on the effects of ancestral trauma. It's riveting. I know it sounds riveting for you. And so the whole podcast and the premise of it was that there is a trauma in our life that comes from our ancestors that manifests itself out into the generations that follow. 
And so there are traumas in our past that manifest themselves into our lives today. And so they would say like things like slavery, the trauma of our ancestors in there were passed down to generations, middle of Europe, uh, the Great Depression. They say that we've all been shaped by the wounds and the trauma of our past generations. That they are in some ways passed down from generations. Now, I certainly can understand how that is true, yet the entire premise of ancestral trauma is a truth that serves another truth. It's a truth that serves another truth. Humanity spins God's truth for its own purposes. So here's what we believe. Every generation of people put a face to their trauma. Every generation of people will somehow, some way say, that is the thing that is keeping my life from being better. That's, that is the thing that is keeping my life from being all that it could be. And certainly there are things in our past that are regrettable. Certainly there are things in the past that should not have happened, and we grieve those things. We mourn those things. The problem comes in this, is even if those things didn't happen in your life, there still would be a trauma in your soul. If they got it all together, you would find an equal amount of lacking in your heart still. Because our trauma is not about people. Our trauma comes from sin. It comes from a creation who is meant to live with God in wholeness and perfection, and we rejected it. We weren't meant to live this way. There's a trauma in our soul that every generation will put a name to. But if we dealt with the real trauma, lack of wholeness with God, enmity with God, we will find that every one of those situations has a new vision. All of those difficulties will find hope within them and they will become less. The shadow of ancestral trauma points to the depravity of human kindness. And so we engage a world speaking truth to the world by its own language because there's nothing to be scared about as a believer in God. It all points to him. We just have to show it. And so I would say this, friends, let's not grow weary. Let's continue to give ourselves over to God as a living sacrifice, our true and proper worship, not conforming ourselves to the patterns of this world, renewing our minds and our lives, but the sufficient wisdom of God and his spirit, and let us engage our culture from a posture of rest, believing that my value my security and my identity comes from God in a different kingdom. We focus on keeping ourselves pure and holy. That we think more about me and what God is trying to make me than worrying about what they are doing to cause my life to be in havoc. Life will change for me if I live as if God's future kingdom is here right now. And lastly, that we would point this culture to the shadows that prove God's light. That we would be faithful to engage in our faith. To engage in our faith. That is the big truth for today. That's the big idea for today. To engage with this culture, we first engage our faith. We have for a long time been able to coast because of shared beliefs within this culture, but we are not in a position where we can coast anymore. 
We have to engage why we believe what we believe, why it's good, and why it's true for our good, for your kids' good, and for the world's good.